welcome to the Thousand Voices podcast. My name is Mujan Asgari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. I'm delighted to have Rachel Aime joining me today from Victoria, Australia. Rachel is a professor of sports science and a behavioral epidemiologist researcher focusing on community sport participation. She's a director of PASI, the Physical Activity and Sport Insights Research Team at Federation University and Victoria University. Rachel has a Bachelor's of Applied Science in Human Movement and Sports Sciences and a PhD in Philosophy of Sports Injury Epidemiology. She's the winner of the AI for Sport Award of the Women in AI Awards 2022 Australia New Zealand. Welcome, Rachel. So glad to have you on our show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So tell me a little about your job and what do you do exactly? Yeah, so I work in, in, in research uh, at the university and we're passionate about uh, community-based participation in sports. So we analyse about just over 1 million sport participation records each year across 13 major sports, looking at trends in participation, things like dropout um, and retention, and that's used for planning in terms of strategic planning uh, of policies and investments by government and by sports organisations. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. How did you come into this area? How did you start? Yeah, well, my first uh, area of um, after my PhD was more in health promotion and started evaluating different sports programs. And then I was really interested in, in sport policy and trying to have data to make um, and transfer that knowledge from data into evidence-based decision-making. And I could see sports were doing a lot of things, but they weren't uh, analysing any data to actually inform their strategic investments. So um, I thought, well, let's have a look at this data and get a team of statisticians and start analysing it so we can get real knowledge uh, to the sports organisations so they can make better decision-making. If you want to tell me a few like important things in your job, important challenges that you're tackling, the, the problems that you're solving, what would you name? Just a few examples. Yeah, trying to get more people engaged in community sport, but more importantly, trying to make sure they stay engaged in community sport. So understanding why people play, why they drop out, making sure we've got enough facilities so people can play. So it's all about 
trying to get people to play and to remain playing sport. Mm-hmm. So how do you differentiate uh, coming to sports from other type of sports? Yeah, well, each time you are registered with the sport, you have a unique sport ID. So we track people by their ID numbers across time. So we've been working on this for, for at least a decade. So we can track people um, within that decade when they when they leave sport and when they come back through their sport ID. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's interesting. A lot of data. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a lot of data, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you have a PhD in philosophy in sports injury. I mean, uh, when I saw the title, I was like, "Wow! How how are they related? Like, how is how is that exactly working?" Can you tell yeah. me? <laughs> so behavioral epidemiology is all about trying to understand behaviors. So whether it was eye injuries in in, in sport or the behavior of sport participation, so understanding the trends of that behavior but also trying to understand the determinants of why people do play sport or, or why they drop out. So whilst the um, the actual details um, are a little bit different, it's still the underlying principles of behaviour change and, and behavioural epidemiology that I'm, that I'm still working with, just much bigger data and across now 13 different sports. Mm-hmm. So can you share some of your findings? So what is, for example, the first reason of people drop out? Well, there's lots of different reasons relating to individual factors like skill and competency, social factors like the influence of peers and, and family, uh, as well as organisational factors such as what programs or competitions are available or what facilities are available. So it's it's not one simple solution. We we use a social socio-ecological approach to understand the multiple determinants and how they relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And once you know those those reasons, how do you how do you work with different organisations to, yep, to solve we, them? What's yeah, yeah, we look at different um, target groups. So it might be adolescent females and things related to adolescent females. They they often um, don't want to play competitive sport anymore, but they still want to play organised non-competitive sport. For, for younger people, it's often that they don't have the, the, the fundamental motor skills and development, so we need to get them into programs so they can learn to catch and throw and get those skills before they start playing sport. For older adults, it's often about social connectedness, the motivation of why they play, so they need to know other people that they can be active with and have age-appropriate opportunities for them to be able to play. Have you noticed any specific reason just for female sport players that they they stop playing competitively? You just mentioned that that mm, like the the female um, players they they don't want to do competition anymore, competitive sports, and they just want to do the sport. Is there is there a special reason to that? Yeah, a lot of it is because what's on offer is the competitive uh, structured model, which is very heavily focused on winning. Uh, and and to when when girls go and transition during adolescence, they've often got a lot of other life priorities as well, like school and education. But their friendship group is really important to them, so they might just want to play with their friends, and they're still trying to still trying to get the ball in the goal or, or the hoops. So you're still trying to to win, but without such a big focus on winning. So often the club based sport options are available are too focused on on winning, and then they've got to commit to training two or three times a week and game day and they just want to be able to rock up and, and play and have more flexible opportunities. Yeah, it it just makes me remember um, one, con- one quote from Kobe Bryant 
and uh, the famous basketballer who, who was saying, basically, he used to play only for the game, for the love of the game and um, yep. not for winning. And that's that's what it changed in his whole career. And unfortunately, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know many like I, I'm not into that much like female sports. I'm not following. And that's that's a shame because <laughs> I know yeah. it's getting uh, more and more famous, especially like soccer. I know um, female soccer Uh, and football it's becoming more and more famous but yeah that that was really interesting to know okay it's just to have fun because as far as you're having fun and enjoying it it's, more, it's you know you're gonna, yeah. yeah and Absolutely. you, you, you win at, at the end yeah you know i mean you can you can increase your chance of winning by just loving what you're doing and having fun if you start to be um, result oriented and just driven by by the win at the end it's it gets hard because there are times you lose Uh, absolutely, only only one person or one team wins each time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. Oh, it's so interesting. So, uh, how about you? Say, have you been involved into any special sport? Were you practicing anything special? Yeah, so I played a lot of tennis and netball when I was younger, um, and then I still play tennis. Uh, and I picked up golf, and I've got uh, twin boys that are sixteen that love playing Aussie rules, football, um, and tennis as well. And I used to coach tennis when I was a bit younger as well. Oh, wow. That's so, that's so fascinating. What, what's your, what was your favorite sport? Uh, tennis, but now now I'm a bit older. I, I really love playing golf. Okay. But, not, but <laughs> I don't nice. have time for competition and, and 18 holes. It's just, it's just uh -huh. nine holes out there with a friend. And yeah, I really enjoy it. I, I assume you were doing it when, when you, know, you were younger, you were doing the competitions. Um, yeah, I, yeah I used to play competitive tennis and now my sons were actually in Sydney he's playing an international tennis federation so he's one of 10 Australians playing others in the Oceana here in Sydney so um, how was yeah, your so. how was your like uh, your feeling with with the competitions how was your relationship with competition well well it's interesting because my job my day job is all about just community sport and people having fun and playing but then now my sons are trying to see where he can go along the tennis journey. And it, and it is quite different because, you know, for him, he has to keep on winning to keep on playing. Otherwise, you know, you're out of the tournament. So it's, it, it is, it is sort of a difficult balance to try and have, but, um, you know, you know, but for me as a parent, I just want to support him and I want him to enjoy and to, to learn and strive to achieve. Yeah, I say that because I used to actually do competitive swimming back in Iran. I'm from Iran. And and I remember that even for our normal session, training sessions, I was always so stressed to the point that I would get diarrhea every time before the session because I was just so scared of being compared to, to others. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this painful process. I loved swimming and I loved to do mm -hmm. the competition because I loved also to when when I would win. But this yep. whole stress, putting myself yeah. every time this expectation that I needed to perform the, you know, the, at the, my highest level. And I wasn't comparing myself to myself. I was, I was doing that, of course. And I mm -hmm. was doing that with, you know, comparing with others. And yeah, I mean, there are times I hated it. <laughs> yeah. it. It is difficult because, um, yeah, a lot of the times the pressure is from the athletes themselves, but they're, they're still only children. They're still, you know, learning to process things and, you know, they're still, you know, individuals and they're learning to grow as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I wish like there, there was somebody that time to tell me, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you just go, you just enjoy it. But I mean, how, what would you tell somebody like at my place? Let's say, um, I don't know, like a 15, 16 <laughs> year old girl who's, who's trying to, you know, perform and trying to, you know, win, trying to go further. What, what would be your message to that person? Oh, you have, you have to enjoy what you're doing. So you've got to enjoy the training and the, and the competition, but you've got to have realistic goals. So uh, Realistic goals, but also great support around you in terms of family and friends and coaches because it's the whole, it's everything <laughs> that contributes to, you know, the longevity in sport. You need to have good support, realistic goals, um, you know, and good, good coaching and, and and a good family behind you to back you to to help support you all the way. Yeah. But if you don't enjoy it, it's not the right thing. I mean, you might not enjoy every minute of it, but you've still got to enjoy the training and the competition for you, for you to you know continue on playing. What would you tell? What What would be your message about the failure? Well, failure. It's interesting because what, how do you define failure? So losing a match is not failure, long as though you're learning from that experience. I don't like the word failure because what does it actually mean? Losing a match is losing a match. You can actually lose a match and play the best, you know, best tennis of your life or learned a lot about your game that you can work on and you actually learn more from your losses than you actually do your wins. So yeah, I don't I don't I wouldn't use the, the word failure. Um and I don't think it's something that we should you know, use in terms of youth sport, um, telling someone they've failed. It's about how you learn from that experience. I love what you said that losing a match is not failure. I love that. Mm, it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's so true. So I want to know how did you end up in AI? I mean, when was the first time you heard of it and that like triggered something and you thought, oh, that's the thing I should yeah. do? <laughs> it, it was more big data. So, uh, and I, I, I'm director of a team of statisticians that do run all the data. But but what I was seeing is across a lot of sports, everyone had similar issues about, you know, 30% of people dropping off and, and they didn't have any statistical and AI experience within them. So I said, well, look, let's share their data with us and our team and we can look at modelling and um, predictions and analysis and of that data. And we we combine that data with a whole range of different data sets to do with, you know, uh, population health or population census-based data or demographics, et cetera. So it's trying to overlay different data sets that can we can look at different research questions and, and different knowledge for sports that they just never had those skills and expertise to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting that you come from like very much applied science and human movement. You know, it's it's not computer science. It it wasn't linked at all your studies to. I mean, my, from my perspective, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it wasn't really pure, let's say, data science, computer science. How was this shift for you? That I mean, what were the things that it helped you to feel comfortable working in this technical field? Yeah, again, it's I've got a team of expertise, so I'm not the the technical guru in terms of that. But I I help direct the, the research questions and understand the data sets, uh, and help direct the team of of what we're looking for and and, and what we should be analysing. And a lot of the time, too, the the sports that I work because I'm very much industry based. The the sports or the government might not know the questions to ask, but, you know, I've been working 20 years in this, this this industry. So, you know, on top of all the literature and 
been doing projects uh, for a long, long, long time. So I sort of had that industry-based knowledge of community sport that's that's important to bring to the table in terms of the team dynamics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see that. What do you think is the future of AI in sport? Or basically, let's talk more about data. What What do you think uh, we could we could do? I think, like, what's your yeah, wish? Uh, well, I think AI in sport is used a lot for the elite um, in terms of analysis of you know player tracking data, etc., like that. I, it hasn't been used as much in terms of community sport, but I think it's got it's got great potential. I think it's sort of a, a new area in terms of community sport, but we just need more more people in the area. But again, to it for us as academics, it, it comes down to funding. We need people to fund the research to, to be able to continue on with it. Mm-hmm. How, how is it working with funding? How is it easy to, so, to apply? Yeah, or of, like it, it's hard um, because it's always competitive funding, um, but we, we, we've been funded for our major projects through state government and other health organisations, and then we do some other stuff with national sporting organisations. But it is... It is always um, difficult to try and um, you know get get large funding that you can do significant projects with. Mm-hmm. I know that you you were involved in some activities to increase participation for women and girls in sports. Yeah, can you share a little bit about that? But I know you did also something relevant to to COVID and participation, the health. Uh, you know, if you can tell so us, lot, I, lot, I heard about like a Vic Health or. Yep, yep. So a lot of the um, research we've been doing for the past decade, we've been able to demonstrate that women and girls' participation has increased. And it's mainly been in traditionally male-dominated sports, like in Australia, like Aussie rules and, and soccer and cricket, where back in my generation, when I was a child, we weren't able to play. And that's we've been able to show that's directly aligned to the sport policies and, and investments. But then we've done more recent research tracking individuals uh, across sports and when they're dropping out. And what we found is that a lot of women and girls are playing male-dominated sports, but they have very high dropout rate. And then we did some qualitative research aligned with that and it demonstrated that the culture within those sports clubs was not necessarily that great um, and they weren't necessarily having a, a great experience that turned them to having a large proportion of them dropping out. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's interesting. And can you tell a little bit about the VEC Sports and uh, Recreation Victoria, this initiative yeah, that's yeah. been yep. so, so we're funded and, and supported by Sport and Rec Victoria, which is state government, as well as Vic Health, which is the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation, as well as Vic Sport, which is a, a sport advocacy organisation in Victoria. It's really good to have different research partners and funders because they all have different priorities within the sector, but they also have different, you know, strategic priorities, investments. So it's important to work across across different organisations within the sector. For example, Big Health are interested in health outcomes, um, whereas Sport and Red Victoria mainly from infrastructure. So we help planning across those different domains. Mm-hmm. How do you assess the Australian a community sports room compared to other countries and and their activities or maybe like something about their the participation of women in in the community sports do you have any comparison in the area compared to other geographies 
We don't have a lot compared to other countries because a lot of the research that has been done previously is that people, researchers survey people, so they'll get a proportion of the population that might have completed a survey, but there's big biases with that. So, But our data is basically everyone who's registered to play uh, one of these 13 sports in a, in a program or competition, they provide their details to that sporting organisation when they sign up and we get access to that de-identified data and analyse it. So that's why we've got a million sporting records each year that we analyse, which is a massive data set, whereas other um, national government uh, surveys in Australia might only survey 15,000 people Australia-wide. So as is census-level data and it's everyone who's registered to play, we've got information on them and we can track them across time. Mm-hmm. And how does it work in terms of the privacy issues? Do you, so like what, what are the things that your yeah. best practices or, yeah. Go yep. Ahead. So we um, we don't have any information on people's names. It's just an ID number, other information like date of birth and residential postcode. We've got university ethics um, that covers all our methodology. Um, and we've also got confidentiality deeds with the sport that took, that explains how we how we use that data, but we don't have have any um, names. And when we report on the data, it's only at an aggregate level. It's only at say you know we will report on the proportion of uh, by gender or by age cohort or by region. We don't report at an individual level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, wonderful. I want to ask you a very different question. I want to know. What is the thing, what is the thought that you wake up every morning and that's the thing that it motivates you every day? I really enjoy working with industry. So um, not not all research is, is industry-based, but for me it's about having a whole range of different sporting partners that we we help them to understand what are the pressing questions that they have and then having the data that really does provide the evidence of, for them to make better decision-making. You know, the data does drive decision-making and, yeah, I'm just passionate about people being active and and um, enjoying playing sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things that I've been always thinking and wishing for is to have a more healthier world that we, can, we could basically have fun and, you know, while doing activities that are good for our health, you know, doing more sport. What What is your message to to people who, who, who love to, you know, have a healthy life, but they're not, they're, their habits is not that way. What would be your message? Tell them that could help them to change that habit and knowing that, you know, changing habits, it's, it's actually something not that easy because, Many, yep. many years had been, <laughs> we've been practicing the wrong pattern, basically. Yeah. I think basically it's about trying different things and finding what you enjoy and find others to do it with because people are often a lot more made, motivated to be active or playing sport if they've got other friends and family to be active with and that's a strong motivation for people to, to keep being active. So whether it's walking the dog or going to the gym or having a, a swim or a hit of tennis, you know, try different things, but do it with others because you're more likely to, to keep playing and keep being active if you are with others. But find something you enjoy because you're more likely to keep doing it. <laughs> and my last question is, how, how did you feel about the awards in Australia and when you, when you were basically called on the stage? Or how, how were you feeling? What do you think about oh. the awards? I just thought it was amazing because, you know, there's very few women in AI and for me too, like there's very few women 
that, that work in in data and statistics and and you know in within the university of women involved there's often a lot of people women get involved in research to start off with their careers but they often don't end up trajectory throughout their careers so I just thought it was a wonderful way to to showcase the great thing that that women are doing across the different industries and, and domains of AI and I just thought it was just a yeah a wonderful experience and I was like yeah super excited to be involved with the with the whole process and and, and the evening was it was really wonderful. Hmm. How has the awards helped you in in any ways? I think it's really helped um, the recognition of, of the group of what we do. You know, there's been quite a few different opportunities to to really showcase what we do do because it's often as academics we, we we sit and we we, we trudge along of, of doing what we're doing, but often it's it's quite inward focused that not a lot of other people and organisations can really find out what we do. So I think it's been a great way to showcase for us the the, the research that our team has been doing. Hmm. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> It's such an honor always to get to know inspiring women like yourself. And I think it's very important to really celebrate the success of of women and girls out there. It's it's much needed. And, and I think, you know, uh, I would love to see more and more people doing that across the world. So, Rachel, I think we have reached to the end of our conversation. I'm so delighted and honored to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time and just good luck with all the amazing projects that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been lovely to have a conversation with you. This was Rachel Ayme from Victoria, Australia. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Asghari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.